0: notion requires that you think of how to structure things up front and obsidian gives you the flexibility of doing that structuring later which i i completely agree with in obsidian sometimes i have like random things that i learned from a book and i don't know how that's going to connect to anything in the future i just think it's cool and i want to write it down and i think that's why obsidian resonates so much with me outside of the whole friction thing
1: but yeah hello PKammers! welcome back to personal knowledge management with aiden halfon the podcast where i interview fellow pkmers and dive into the unique ways they use their pkm systems for work creativity and life this week we have rachel madrigal a software engineer turned product manager at twingate and part-time youtuber who creates vlog and obsidian content she's also a friend of mine because we meet weekly for our youtube accountability meetings which has been so, so much fun. A little bit of life trajectory for Rachel. She started her love of coding with various coding projects, creating games for young kids. She got a bachelor's of computer science at the University of Houston and started working as a software engineer. More recently, she switched to product management at tackle.io before going to TwinGate and delved into the second brain community using Obsidian as her main knowledge management tool. We talked about Rachel's work as a software engineer and experience switching to product management, how note-taking is helping her in both careers, and her experience becoming a more minimalist Obsidian user. Rachel, what drew you to software engineering?
0: Honestly, it was a little bit of an accident. I, I actually started off uh, studying finance, and One day we were required, well, one semester, we were required to learn programming, we learned Python, and I swear, there was like two people in the room who liked it. It was me and this guy who was the son of a bunch of um, software engineers. So uh, I thought that was a good sign to switch over, and it was. Uh, It was much more fun, it was much more doable for me to do product, uh to do software engineering than it was to do finance so yeah
1: you're glad that you you made the switch
0: yeah i mean i've been really into computers since i was younger um I, like you said i i actually did like little games for myself and small websites even before that but seeing that not everybody likes it as much as i did was a was a good signal for me to to try it out and and yeah i'm very glad that i did it, it i think it was a really good start to my professional career.
1: While you were a software engineer, I saw that you switched between three different jobs over the course of your career. You started at JP Morgan, and then you went to National Oil Well Barco. And then finally, you moved to Camden Property Trust. Can you tell me more about that?
0: Yeah, well, actually, there's one more I did software engineering at Tackle as well. I think pretty normal for, for in the tech industry to switch jobs a lot. Uh, JP Morgan was an internship for me. So obviously, that was only like a one summer. Um, but then as I got into the industry, sometimes it's the easiest way to learn more, which you absolutely need to do, is to switch to a different job that requires different skills. So whenever I felt that I was stagnating at a job and I wasn't learning as much as I should. I I looked around and found better things.
1: It sounds like switching between the different software engineering jobs made you learn way, way more than if you had just stayed in one for the entire time.
0: To be honest, so I stay in jobs for about two to three years before I switch. I don't do that on purpose, but it's just the pattern that's been emerging. That's actually pretty long for a software engineer. A lot of my friends would stay at jobs for like six months and then they'd switch over. Uh, But, you know, you find what works for you.
1: (laughs) Can you tell me about some of the things you learned or had to learn from doing those switches?
0: Yeah, sure. So at my first job, I was really lucky that they put me in a brand new technology. It was like in beta and we were learning it as the developers were building the technology. So I got really lucky there. And as I was finding my next role, that was something that I like talked about a lot in interviews. And as I found my next job, originally, they were thinking that I would help them transition to this new technology. Uh, that didn't happen because business reasons. But I still was able to do a similar thing, helping them transition from one technology to another. And then basically every time I switch jobs, I take the previous one and, you know, broadcast it to the world and tell them, like, look, look at this cool new thing I can do now. And uh, I've been able to just hop jobs by doing that.
1: Is there anything that you found helps you during these transitions?
0: Fake it till you make it. (laughs) I think that's uh, that's um, what everybody is doing. Uh, I, I don't know if there's any one particular thing, but I definitely go through rounds of like imposter syndrome every single time because I'm like, I told them I can do this, but now I don't know if I can. Uh, but then, you know, as you as you learn on the job, you're like, oh, yeah, I could do this.
1: <laughs> I resonate so much with that as a as a Cornell University student. There are so so many students here that have imposter syndrome. They don't feel like they deserve to to be at Cornell or they're not they're not studious enough, they're not working hard enough, and it sounds like in these job transitions, it feels the exact same way in software engineering and in other industries.
0: For sure. I mean, the, the bad news is that it never goes away <laughs> and you're going to have to deal with imposter syndrome for a very long time. And I, I hear at least from like listening to podcasts and watching interviews that it sounds like it's going to be there forever. So you kind of just have to learn how to, how to fake it and to rely on the experience that you already have to have that confidence to do things.
1: Is there anything you think is helping you get past that imposter syndrome?
0: A lot of people talk about this and it's actually something that's worked a lot for me. Having a list (laughs) of your accomplishments, whether it's in a file somewhere or photos or whatever system you choose to do. I I literally take screenshots of every time somebody praises me. (laughs) and i put it in a file (laughs) so that the next time i feel bad about myself or the next time i think my boss doesn't like me (laughs) i look through my file and i'm like okay no i'm good (laughs) and it's also really useful for uh for you know um getting raises and getting promotions and whatnot so i always bring that up and say that look i did this please pay me
1: money i love that i have a exact same thing on my obsidian page i have an obsidian page called inspiration machine and it has all of my the ideas that i most resonate with like i have literally the definition of the compounding effect on there just because every time you read it it's like oh wow the compounding (laughs) effect (laughs) and i also have like my favorite quotes and my 12 favorite questions which are like the questions that uh, I mean, you took sec- building a second brain as well. The, the questions that you sort of drive your life by what you're most interested in trying to answer. And then I also have exactly like you said, a, a compliment sandwich is what I call it, where every time I get a compliment, I just write down whatever that compliment was at the top of the page. And I'm slowly just accruing this massive sandwich of, of pure positivity
0: Yeah, I actually one of the jobs that I left uh, before I left the job, I went through all of my old emails and messages just to compile them because I I wasn't doing it over time. And I would just reviewed everything just to see, oh, this person said that I was good at this. I'm going to save that. It's a it's a nice confidence boost for sure.
1: Is there anything in there you think is particularly confidence boosting? I don't think
0: I can think of a single Event. One thing I've learned from my job experience is I really like it when I work with somebody who's not in my team. And then they specifically call me out to my manager saying, look, Rachel did this cool thing. And so now I try to do that for other people. So every time somebody does something well, I go to their manager and then tell them, look, the person who's working for you is doing really well. And you should know that.
1: That's so nice. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to
0: pay it forward.
1: (laughs) So I know that it's only been recently that you've learned about personal knowledge management and building a second brain. But do you think that during your software engineering and the switching between jobs back then, you used some of the principles of personal knowledge management and building a second brain without knowing it? But now, um, now you realize.
0: Yeah, for sure. I have been. I was the kid who would take down notes for everything. I had a. I had a per planner slash journal since I was like, I don't know, five when there was nothing going on in my life. <laughs> but I, I, I was that kind of kid. Um, so I have been taking notes forever and ever and ever. But I've, I haven't quite figured out how to reuse some of that knowledge and organize it until a couple of years ago, maybe, when I first started stumbling onto the idea of personal knowledge management. I I believe I had a boss who kind of started talking to me about it, how he explained how if you're more organized with your meetings and your notes, it makes everything better for everybody around you. And that really stuck with me. And so I fell really deep down into the rabbit hole of personal knowledge management and all the different words for it, like second brain and all that. So... I, I've been in it ever since.
1: I'm sorry. I'm just imagining a five-year-old writing down like, Day day 360. Today, I made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> that was it.
0: <laughs> That's basically yeah. it. I was like, I woke up. I brushed my teeth. Um, I wore... I, my sister would write down what she wore every single day. So I started copying her. But I went to a school that had uniforms. So that... I wore the same uniform every single day. <laughs> uh, somehow it was important for me. Um, but yeah.
1: So it sounds like your boss telling you about the importance of writing down stuff for meetings was the kickstart of really diving into the PKM sphere.
0: Yeah, um, he, he was really, he didn't follow PKM, but he did a lot of it. He, he had like a nice little wiki page before wikis were cool. And he basically explained, like, starting off projects and then kicking them off and completing them. And he, he explained all of that to me um, before I learned about it about in personal knowledge management. So, yeah.
1: I think that's something important to note. When I'm talking to a lot of people that are new to building a second brain and PKM, obviously, when you say building a second brain to someone, their eyes are just like... Oh. Oh what? <laughs> like they they're they're very intimidated. But I think that it's important to note like what you just said. These are all like things that we we all do uh, to some degree. We're just in the PKM sphere putting names to that so that we can talk about it more easily and also so that we can be more intentional with how we do it.
0: I, I like the idea of being more intentional about it. Um I believe at the beginning, you don't know what's important, or you don't know what your style for doing it yet is yet. So, um, over time, and I think people who are in PKM are a little bit more obsessed about it <laughs> than others. Um, I definitely am one of them. Uh, but over time, you figure out what works for you and what doesn't, and you might not have the right words for it. But uh, a lot of people are doing the same thing.
1: Do you think that in that? transition period of software engineering where you're going between jobs, this PKM mindset, even if that's not what you would have called it back then, helped you do the transitioning?
0: I think actually, I think um, me knowing how organized I am with my notes and liking the idea of uh, personal knowledge management is actually one of the reasons I really considered becoming a product manager. As a software engineer, I was a lot more naive and I thought that, oh, um, I can do this job much better than the people that I've already met doing it. That was wrong, but <laughs> um, yeah. I did like I, I really thought that I uh, my personality and the things that I like to do fit more into product management than it did with software engineering. And me liking to take notes and organizing them and sharing them was a very big part of that.
1: Can you tell me more about that? What made you switch from software engineering, the thing that you got your degree in? to product management
0: so software engineering in my opinion has a tendency to have very similar problems no matter what industry and what specific job title you have it's the problems overlap unless you're working for somebody like tesla or i don't know nuclear reactors
1: (laughs) unless you're something
0: on working on something crazy you're basically working on the same thing everybody else is working on and After five years of doing that, to me, it got a little bit repetitive. And I'm not saying that I was the greatest software engineer ever, but I was definitely getting tired of that particular set of problems. And the nice thing about product management is because it involves so much more people and coordinating between different groups of people, it's a different problem every time. The relationships and the personalities of the people that you deal with are always going to be slightly different and um, I really like that. I also genuinely felt like I tend to lean more towards organization in a way that a lot of people don't, and I felt like that was a skill that I could help people with.
1: It sounds like as a software engineering, you were getting tired of doing the same problems, and in product management... Your job is to sync the people and shape and ship the product. So you're talking to so many clients. You're getting tons of emails, tons of Slack messages, and it's so so different for every single one how how do you handle the constant communication and and data
0: oh that's an interesting one Uh, i think everybody has a completely different approach to this and this is probably not going to work for a lot of people but i have very strict rules for myself i only check my email once once or twice a day like at the start of the day and at the end of the day and similarly for slack i only allow myself to get notifications from directly my team, or the projects that I'm involved in. Um, So for Slack, most companies have like hundreds of channels. So depending on how active your company is, a lot of people will get notifications like literally all day long. I turn off all of that. So I get to sit down and actually do work instead of responding to Slack and email messages. I don't know. I, I guess it depends on your actual company and your role and the expectations for you but this has definitely worked for me um it's a lot less stressful than responding like after every single message so i bulk it all up and i i just do it at the start and at the end of my day
1: that is fascinating to me because as a as a student and content creator myself i don't have that many communications per day other than with friends maybe the occasional communication with the professor so i easily i i get away with checking my email once once at night and my messages once per day but it sounds like in your job you're you're getting communicated much more often how do you how do you manage to still keep up with all the communication if you're only checking two times a day on average?
0: So I started off like immediately looking at every message and every email. I think you really have to set the expectations for yourself. Um, And this took me a long time to learn. (laughs) Originally, I thought that you have to respond immediately all the time. But if you kind of just set the expectation that I'm going to respond when I can respond, people will accept it. So kind of if you kind of think of like your really strict professors who are have been strict since day one, you kind of get used to it. That's kind of how I think about things. <laughs> uh, I'd like to be not the strict professor, but I mean, I want people to get used to me responding when I can.
1: I resonate a lot with that. I started only responding once per day about a, a year ago, of course, after I read Deep Work. And I think that's where a lot of people get their initial like deep focus is all that matters mindset. but. Uh, after after I did it for like a couple of days, my family hated me and so did all my friends. They were like, "You're a demon. How dare you not respond instantly like you used to?" I remember that as time went on, exactly like you said, once the expectation was set, people just began to think of my time as as important as I was trying to make it, and they no longer would come to me asking Aiden where did you put the ketchup in the fridge and like like they would they would try and figure that out themselves instead of interrupting like my writing writing flow i'd love to hear how do you think your life has improved or disproved I can't say it's only positive from responding and checking communication media so little.
0: Oh, you know what? You actually made a really good point there. Uh, So because I don't respond quite as quickly as I used to, I think I would like to think I'm not sure. I'd like to think that people are a little bit more detailed and more thoughtful about their messages. Because if you know that the question isn't going to get answered for another three to four hours, one Can you answer the question yourself? And two, can I give you all the information that you need so that we don't have to go back and forth so much?
1: So it sounds like one positive you've experienced as well as the same thing I was talking about is people generally at your work, they won't come to you unless it's like a real problem. It's not like, something that they'll come to you with and then you're like it's it's literally like all you have to do is this
0: <laughs> exactly i i will say that it also depends on the company uh definitely the company i'm at right now fosters this environment because a lot of people are the same way i have been at companies where i am sure this would not have worked where everybody would be like i don't like her because she doesn't respond enough and that <laughs> might you know affect your standing at work but it it's something that's hard to kind of suss out during the interview process. But if you get lucky enough to find a company like this, I think it's, it's, it's a good one.
1: Is there any prioritization that you give the communication medias? Like, is there someone or some medium that you will check more often or you'll put more precedence on?
0: Yeah, I definitely um, put more precedence on Slack from my teammates and i have some channels that are specific to the projects that i'm working on so those ones i actually really do pay attention to and i have the notifications on mostly because th- those are my responsibility um otherwise everything else there's a lot of like cats channel and dogs channel and i check those once a day <laughs> <laughs>
1: I would I would uh, spend the majority of my day there if I was was working. I'm joking. <laughs> I, I think,
0: think a lot of people do,
1: but uh, yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit distracting. <laughs> I resonate with that because personally, I prioritize responding to my mom, of course. So anyone, uh, most other people, well, actually, my dad as well, and also my brother, my family. Basically. <laughs> but i I will respond much much faster to them than if it's some email about logistical thing for a project in school. I will put much less precedence on that because it's not with someone that I deeply, deeply care about. So when you were switching from software engineering to product management, was this around the time period that you had gotten into PKM and building a second brain?
0: It was a little bit afterwards, I think. Yeah. So I'm, I was still pretty new to it, but uh, it was I the way that I stored my information was not quite as complex as it is now.
1: Do you think that having PKM concepts when you were going to uh, going through your switch, how do you think that affected?
0: Well, I think first of all, I wish I was better at it uh, while I was a software engineer. Because like I said, we were encountering really similar problems over and over again. If I had the notes for it and I, I had, you know, reusable information, I could have definitely uh, just, you know, copy pasted or looked back. But um, it definitely helped with my product management career because there are some processes that are going to be there, like no matter what job you have and no matter, you know, what industry you're working for. So th- those processes I'm trying to get really good at and just have the same template over and over again that I can tweak every once in a while. But having that original template is going to make my work so much faster and so much better quality than if I had re- redone it every single time.
1: What types of things would you have, have liked to have had that sort of intermediate packet mindset towards in software engineering that you only really developed as a product manager.
0: I worked at a place where we had a job that we had to do every quarter. And for some reason, this script was broken. And we had a similar version of a bug pop up every single quarter. But the problem was because the last time we saw it was three months ago. Nobody remembered anything about it and nobody remembered how we solved it again. And so if I had written it down and then saved it on my computer... I could have just looked at that every three months. But no, we definitely, we like, we got in the code and we debugged it every single time. And I'm like, why are we doing this? But yeah, I wish I had that then.
1: I don't think it clicks for most people. I, I, even though you say like it sounds so simple and obvious, like to me, it wasn't simple at all until I, until I dived into it. And now it's very natural as a student. And I wish I've been trying to help other students like through my YouTube channel, through this podcast, through recommending your content and other people's content to begin ingraining this mindset. Because I think that for students, it is particularly pervasive and and a problem. And the reason is, as a student, a lot of A lot of people around me, they forget the fact that they're not going to have the classes that they're taking this semester, next semester, and they don't do any types, uh, they don't think beforehand how they're going to make it so that the work they do in the classes that they're taking now will be useful and applicable, and they can borrow work that they did after Mm -hmm. the class is over. and. Like one really good example is the Canvas site that we submit most of our work on at Cornell. You don't have access to it after the class is over. So, but most students, they only submit their work through that Canvas site. What happens after the class is done and they can't access the Canvas site anymore? Well, those hours of work that they spent creating amazing stuff in their classes are now completely inaccessible to them. That's a problem.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For sure. I think maybe part of it is also ego. Like, I can imagine myself thinking like, oh, I'm going to remember this later. I I already learned how to do this. So I'm going to remember how to do this again. Our memories are not not that good. And uh, I didn't realize that at the time. So I think maybe part of it could be an ego thing for me. But now it's better.
1: I think you hit on something really interesting there because... I'm taking a social psychology class right now. And one of the major points he makes in that class is how naturally overconfident we humans are. One of the places you particularly see it as a student is our confidence in how knowledgeable we are on a subject that we're gonna take a test on. I think that, like you said, it's kind of an ego thing because a lot of students, you know, they're reading over some notes for when they're studying for a test, which is a horrible study study strategy. But as they're reading it over, they're like, wow, you know, this all sounds very familiar. You know, I remember writing it out. I remember copying exactly what the professor said verbatim on the day. I think I know this. I don't have to study in any other way. I don't have to use any active techniques whatsoever. And it's that, it's that ego. It's that overconfidence that I think also is... Similarly, the reason that students don't think about how they can save work or how they can think about organization in any way for after they finish the class. They're like, oh, I don't have to worry about that. I'm fine. You know, it's a uh, I have a memory of iron. <laughs> I, I don't need a, a 20 years down the line. I'm going to remember everything that I took in this class.
0: Yeah, well, so confidence and ego is a funny thing because um, on one hand, You really need that confidence so that you could sell yourself and, you know, tell people that you can do one thing or another. But then it's hard because you don't want to get too overconfident and not learn anything new and not, you know, develop yourself. So I think it's a it's a tough problem to
1: have. I read in a book called Think Again by Adam Grant about this way that you can have both confidence and humility. And he calls it confident humility. And it's something I've been trying to ingrain because I personally think it's a great mindset to have. And essentially, the way it works is you have confidence. Like you said, you, you, you get past the imposter syndrome for whatever you're doing, or at least you try your best to get past it. So you're confident in yourself being able to solve a problem. Say you're confident in making the transition from one software engineering job to another, or from software engineering to product management, you're not 100% certain that the tools you're using to do that are the best tools to be using. And that way, you are confident, but you're still willing to shift if a better approach shows itself.
0: Ooh, I like that. I haven't read that book. I have it, But uh, as you can see behind me, I have a lot of books that have and have not been read. <laughs>
1: <laughs> For everyone listening, uh, Rachel is just sitting in just a... Massive library
0: <laughs> um well, I'm lucky because both me and my boyfriend are really into reading, so we get to like borrow books from each other a lot, but it also means that we buy a lot of books and don't actually get to reading them
1: <laughs> well i'd love to I'd love to ask about like books in particular. I remember that there was one video that you made, and this is a good segue into obsidian as well where you talked about how you take book notes in obsidian correct me if i'm wrong was obsidian your original note-taking knowledge management tool that you started using when you got into pkm or no
0: no um i started off with pen and paper um i've i went through the whole bullet journal route and then i decided that it needs to be digital so i went into evernote i believe i touched notion and then this was back when they haven't really improved their product so I. Uh, did not. I stayed in Evernote, and then eventually I fell into Notion, and then it, Obsidian. Now I'm in Obsidian.
1: Wow, that is quite the journey.
0: <laughs> I'm sure I'm missing a lot of apps. I am the kind of person who will try every single app. And I, in fact, since uh, I started my YouTube channel, I get a lot of emails from app developers saying, hey, do you want to check out this note-taking app? And so I try a lot of them. <laughs> uh, I just find it really fun. <laughs>
1: Well, it sounds like it it's fun to learn how to use the new app. So to be honest, like I don't actually think that's that negative of a thing unless it's like completely sabotaging your ability to to have a tool that you can you can trust as like your base, right?
0: Yeah, um I try not to. I try not to sabotage myself. I, I give myself like sometimes you open an app and you know it's not gonna work for you. But even if it does, I try like to time box myself to maybe a day or two and then decide whether or not i'm switching over completely uh so but now right now right now obsidian is doing everything for me so i'll stay there
1: tell me more about that how did you go from pen and paper to obsidian what made you choose to switch after every single app change
0: uh the bullet journal thing to digital is i think a little bit more self-explanatory i figured out that uh I want to be able to search these things. I want to be able to insert photos and media and, you know, videos into my notes. So I got rid of pen and paper, which I still kind of do. But, you know, it's more like scratch paper today. And then from Evernote to Notion. So my dream at the time was to create a bullet journal on a computer. So that means I could put photos. I could decorate it. It's going to be fun. It's going to be cute. So I went from Evernote into Notion and then I stayed in Notion for quite a while. Um, But then after a while I realized I was not doing any work at all. I was just making it look good every single time. (laughs) (laughs) So I went from Notion to Obsidian and now I think I'm trying to like become a little bit of a PKM minimalist where I'm trying to be very, very conscious of what I take notes on and what I summarize and what I spend my attention on, because uh, just taking notes doesn't actually do anything for for you or your job.
1: How is that working for you?
0: Do f- think that I'm spending much less time doing busy work and much more time doing work that actually matters? Um, I think it was I think it was James Clear who talked about like the difference between actions and motions, and so basically he was saying that. A lot of people do motions, which, you know, feels useful, but doesn't move the needle towards your actual goal. And then what you want to do is actions. So I'm trying to like have this new mindset.
1: In integrating this minimalist mindset, are there any rules or regulations that you've set in place for what you capture and how you organize it, how you distill, how you express?
0: I try to stop summarizing my book notes so much. So I read the book, I highlight it, and I put it onto Obsidian. That's it. And then um, if I find that in the future it does need to be summarized or I keep on going back to it, that's the only time I actually spend more time on that note. Um, I also am more conscious of the actual content that I take notes on. So for instance, I used to write notes on literally every topic. If I Google something, it's going into my Obsidian. And now I realized... I could just Google it again. So I'm only uh, putting in things that are related to my YouTube or to product management. Or if I have like a special interest of the month, that changes a lot. But yeah.
1: I myself am going through a minimalist PKM (laughs) movement in Obsidian as well. I did the exact same thing as you in, in Rome research and in my old system in Notion. I captured notes on everything. (laughs) If if I if I was reading an article, I was reading a book, having a conversation. You bet your patootie, I was taking notes and putting it in my my Rome Researcher Notion. And what I ended up finding is this is described by Nick Milo in the PCAM community is that my joy of note taking completely evaporated Mm. because my system started to get filled with other people's ideas and thoughts instead of my own so when i logged into my second brain in the morning there wasn't this aura of wonder at what awesome worlds i was going to build what new connections and ideas i was going to make it was just a dark black hole of death and other people's ideas and now like just like you in my obsidian i'm trying to be very intentional with what I take notes on like you said you know you can google it if, if it's just like a random funny fact like you don't have to put it in your obsidian I'm trying to be more intentional about actually creating my own ideas like I'm only writing things down if it if there's a really cool unique spin on it that I want to to put in like a really good example for you is I've taken a lot of I've read a lot of books on stoicism and buddhism and in my Obsidian vault, there's a couple notes that I've made where I have connected ideas from Stoicism and related them to Buddhism. The reason that I've chosen that as like a big part of my Obsidian vault is that is in is intimate to my myself because it is a connection that I don't think many other people have made who have also looked at Stoicism and, and Buddhism. It's something unique to me. And yeah, that's why yeah. I wrote it down
0: that i you have a really good point with the idea of you want your notes to be something that's fun for you because the minute it starts feeling like a job i mean we already have too many things that we have to do let's not make this one fun thing uh, a job
1: i totally agree it's 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 insane to me how how easy it is to add stuff on to something as the the way to make it better like when, when you first begin note taking or you first begin obsidian, I could totally see this happening and I don't want it to happen to me. Uh, there's so many plugins, so much <laughs> cool stuff that you can add. And you start off with like the base and at least what's happening to me right now, you can probably say if, if you feel this way as well is you start off with that base and you're like, okay, maybe I'll add this plugin because you know, I really like that feature, but I'll stop there. I'll stop there. Oh, that's a cool plugin. Whoa, Nicole! Uh, Nicole made another. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> and then next thing you know, you have thirty plugins in your in your vault. You can't even remember the names of them, and <laughs> you're spending more time reading through what the plugins do than you are actually taking notes.
0: Uh, Tiago Fordo says this in his book, where he's like, you know, a perfect system that you don't use is not perfect, and I think the problem. Well, a common path for a lot of people is that you start off and you want to make this ridiculously perfect system that's going to do all of the work for you. And over time, you come to realize that one, no system is going to do the work for you. And two, maintaining this system is actually hard work. And so for me, one of the biggest things that I have found that works for me is is to reduce the friction. So when I create a new note, I don't think of where it's gonna go. I just create a new note. Or like literally anything that I feel is too much work gets cut out. Um and, and I, I think when you're a little bit newer to the idea of personal knowledge management, you don't know what's important yet. So you 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 naturally fall into this um pattern of collecting ideas on everything. And But I think at some point everybody realizes that there are only so much things that matter to you and then you start to trim it back down. And now you're going down the minimalist route.
1: <laughs> what do you think it was for you that made you go from that collecting of everything to, okay, now this is what matters to me. This is why I'm going minimalist.
0: So I was the kid who would buy a new notebook for no reason all the time. And the idea of a new notebook is really exciting because it's... It's new, it's shiny, and there's nothing written on it. So there's always these cycles of like, I'm going to write down everything, and then I'm going to get stressed about this thing that I did. So now I'm going to buy a new notebook. So it's the same thing, but digital, right? So like, I'm going to build out my brain in Evernote, and now I'm too stressed about it. Let me move on to Notion. And then from Notion to Obsidian. So now, uh, in this cycle of it, I'm just trying to be very careful that I'm not stressing myself out with this thing that I'm building.
1: Now that you're using that more minimalist note-taking style, how does it feel to use Obsidian?
0: Like I said, I try apps all the time. And I think one of the things that works for me the best with Obsidian is that there's really no distractions. If you open it up, you have a blank, black page, or white if you're on light, but this blank page and you just write. And I think for me... That blank page is just... It's all I need. And I don't need any more distractions than that.
1: With the other note-taking apps you used, did you feel like there was more distractions?
0: Yeah, I feel like... I mean, I get it. Some people want more options. Some people want different looks. Um, For me... Like I said earlier, what's most important is reducing friction. So if I have to spend time finding where a note belongs or figuring out the correct formatting for my notes, it takes away from the idea of just writing down what's in my brain. And I think um, that's what I really love about Obsidian because I literally just write things down and I move on.
1: Mm. So it sounds like you've you've reduced the friction for creating a note because you're not maliciously organizing it right away how how do you think that this is going to affect your obsidian vault long term in terms of connections being made or organization faltering
0: oh good question i have been thinking about this for a while now i actually have reduced the number of links in my notes a lot and I don't know about you, but do you ever use the Obsidian Graph? Because I just think it looks pretty and I never use it.
1: I have only been using Obsidian for two weeks. So uh-huh. I haven't I haven't been able to experiment with it enough. But I have heard of and I have seen some Obsidian creators who I'm very intrigued by the way they use the Obsidian Graph. I don't think it's absolutely necessary because I don't think Nicole... Uh, Nicole uses her obsidian graph, but I've seen a guy named Danny Hatcher use it in a very interesting way for his thesis. And what he does for his thesis writing on cognitive extension and memory is he has colors on the graph that are associated with different parts of his thesis research. So there's colors for like cognitive extension, there's colors for hearing, there's colors for cognitive science, there's colors for memory And he can see how his various parts of his thesis writing are connecting to each other. And he describes it as showing him new areas for his research that he didn't realize he needed to look in. Like, for instance, the area uh, of research on hearing, he had no idea his thesis was going to have to do with hearing in any way. And it was only after seeing his notes through the local graph view and seeing there was like a hole where hearing should be, that he he started to realize that needed to he needed to research into that.
0: Mm, this is a little bit tangential, but have you heard of Kane's Jawbone?
1: No. Tell me. <laughs> okay.
0: So Kane's Jawbone this this came out of TikTok. Um, is a really old book. It's like I don't know, fifty, a hundred years old or whatever. But it's a it's a puzzle. It's a mystery novel, but all of the pages are shuffled and so you get a book of 100 pages and you don't know what the order is and you now have to like arrange it to figure out what the mystery was and so historically um i think only two people have solved it and then over the pandemic one more person solved it because they were you know home alone with nothing else to do and now it's like and i don't know if it's still popular but now so like tiktok picked it up up and it became really popular and so i jumped on the trend And I bought this book. And one of the things that I was thinking about doing with it is I wonder if I could input the different parts of the different pages on Obsidian and then use the graph to, like, connect the pieces? I don't know. Maybe this would be a great YouTube video. But... I still haven't solved it, obviously. It, it's an interesting thing that maybe we'll figure out in the future.
1: That's amazing. And, you know, now that yeah. now that you go on, like, first of all, that was a beautiful tangent. Like, <laughs> that, was, that was hilarious. Is there is there anything else that any other example in your life using Obsidian or using another note-taking app where just, like, the very essence of, like, that linking feature or, thinking about your ideas and wanting to create like new spin-offs of them has caused you to go down these like just rabbit holes of thought
0: on my youtube channel i made this video about like switching over from notion to obsidian and it makes me sound like i hate notion but i don't i just said that it didn't work for me but now i'm kind of um slightly falling back into notion because i use it for work and there are depending on how you think about notion there are so many things that you could do with it and so Again, another tangent, but yeah.
1: <laughs> I agree. I think it's important to highlight that as well, that just because you switch to a note-taking app, like you're using Obsidian now, and now I'm using Obsidian and loving it, doesn't mean suddenly you should say like, oh, this is the one note-taking app. Everyone should use this. If you don't use this, you're an imposter to the PKM <laughs> community. I, <laughs> I think that everyone thinks differently and every there's definitely an app for everyone out there like my mom she uses google keep which is not a note taking app most people in the pcamp community would would think of we want the the really cool gadget like linking features but she finds google keep amazing because it's so simple it has everything she wants uh she she needs in a note taking app like she can she can put down tasks with the little check marks she can put down links she can make folders. And that simplicity is what allows her to do kind of what we're saying, that minimalistic approach.
0: Mm -hmm. Actually, Google Keep, uh, I've heard a couple of people use it. Uh, It makes sense for some people, especially because a lot of people, including myself, our whole lives are in Google. You have your email, you have your calendar, you have basically everything you need. And so I can see that totally making sense. People get really defensive about their note-taking apps, which I find fascinating because I'm like, I'm not attacking you. (laughs) But um, I I guess, I don't know. I guess people just are really passionate about the tools that they use if they, you know, if they fall in love with a tool.
1: I think there's something really interesting there. Like the the interesting thing to me about these note-taking apps is unlike with some other app, maybe like your your Uber Eats app or something like that. Like the these apps directly affect your cognition. They directly affect the way that you think. I don't think the same in Notion as I do in Obsidian. I don't think the same in Google Keep as I do in Rome Research. Because the ways that they are aligned, the ways that they work writing-wise are fundamentally different. And I think that's one of the reasons that people get so defensive about these apps is when you tell them, oh, Obsidian, Obsidian is terrible. (laughs) Essentially what you're saying is your way of thinking sucks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. That's actually a really good point. And I found that... With all of my testing apps, um, sometimes I open an app and I see it, and I'm like, "This is not how my brain works. This is like you can make it as pretty as you want to, it's not going to work for me." And switching from one app to another is actually really hard because now you have to switch how you're thinking about organizing and constructing these notes.
1: What do you think it is about Obsidian that resonates with your specific way of thinking that none of the other apps? You've used have.
0: I want to say uh, Nicole said this in one of her YouTube videos where she basically says um, Notion requires that you think of how to structure things up front, and Obsidian gives you the fe- flexibility of doing that structuring later, which I, I completely agree with. Sometimes there are things where you know how this is going to look, you know how you're going to track things. So, for instance, like I have a, a habits um, table on Notion. Just because I know that it's the same habits every time and I just want a score for it. Um, It's basically an Excel, but cooler. (laughs) Um, But uh, in Obsidian, sometimes I have like random things that I learned from a book. And I don't know how that's going to connect to anything in the future. I just think it's cool and I want to write it down. And I think um, that's why Obsidian resonates so much with me outside of the whole friction thing. But yeah,
1: I've never heard it put that eloquently before. And I am so glad this podcast is is, is recorded because uh, like this is like a gold mine of just insight.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. I, I listened to your, uh, your first episode and I was like, oh, this is a lot of pressure. It's actually a really good podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess to answer your question, I feel... Like I might have to steal a bit of your answer there because I love the ability to just create a note. That's sort of how I'm doing it right now Uh, and not have to agonize over where it is I'm going to organize it in the future. I've been using this note-taking philosophy by Nick Milo, who uh, has this course called Linking Your Thinking – and his whole brand is built off the idea of adding joy back into your note-taking system, your note-taking process. And the way you do that is by creating more of your own notes, your own ideas and connections. And he, you do that through this note-taking philosophy called active ideation. And the way it works is instead of like in progressive summarization, which is the main note-taking philosophy in building a second brain, instead of leaving the thinking for later in the process when you come across the note uh, the note again and again and again, instead of leaving it for later in the process, you connect and you try and relate to your other notes as you're reading the material for the first time. So if you're reading an article, or you're reading a book and you take a highlight, try and make a reason for why you took that highlight. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't just you don't just take highlight the whole book. You <laughs> highlight something that really resonates with you, connect it to something uh, that that means a lot to you, and then when it pops up in your second brain later or if you just create a note on it right then, you already have made it into your own idea, and it is not just someone else's words. And that gives you the freedom to take notes in your own idea, without having to necessarily organize it right away, because you know that because it was made in your own idea, and you connected it to something that resonates with you, it'll probably come back up again sometime later. And you'll be able to summarize it in like a mock, which is a map of content, uh, as he calls it, that sort of gives like a summary page of a thing that you're interested in. It could be habits, it could be science of learning could be how stoicism and buddhism connect definitely did not take that from my own life (laughs) (laughs) but i just i just love that that ability to to take notes to to have more of my system just filled with my own ideas and to feel like i'm literally every time i'm opening up obsidian jumping into like a personal world that is unique to me and awesome
0: (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Uh, I, I guess that's a little bit of the appeal of Zettelkasten, which the idea is that you you write your own version of the notes in atomic notes, as he calls it, and you connect it to existing notes. Um, for me, whenever... I don't follow Zettelkasten uh, seriously, but um, I do definitely have my own... That's why I write on the side of my books. I used to be the kind of person who would not highlight or fold or write on their books. And then more recently, I've shifted completely the other way. And now I write down all of my thoughts on the sides of the books because the idea is maybe one day in the future, I might pick it up and see that, oh, at this time, I was thinking of, I don't know, this coworker or this event in my life. And I was relating this book to that. Um, and then I, eventually I move that into my Obsidian
1: I love how you, you brought up Zettelkasten in that way because you're totally right. It is very similar to Zettelkasten uh, in that often in Zettelkasten, the, the notes themselves will tell you what to write by the weird connections they make rather than you going in with the explicit purpose of writing something and then looking into your notes. I do think that with a lot of note-taking philosophies, they, they make stuff a little bit too rigid like and I love the idea of it, but I think if that's all that you did, <clears throat> that would be an issue because like there are many, many times where I, I want to go in with the express purpose of writing on something specific. And if I only followed and I only allowed my note-taking system to tell me what to write, I wouldn't be able to do that. So I think a, a mix of just like with so many other tips it's always more nuanced than than what people say. I think a mix of Zettelkasten, a mix of progressive summarization, a mix of active ideation, a mix of the infinite other note taking philosophies is kind of the right way to go. In your own unique, whatever your unique mix of that is,
0: for sure. Like I, I definitely cherry pick from a lot of different uh, people in the community and uh, ideas that they have because. I mean, just because it works for them doesn't mean it's going to work for me. And so I just pick out what I think might work. And if it does, it stays in my system. And if it doesn't, I abandon it pretty quickly.
1: There's a term that I wanted to ask you about that really, really uh, is coming up after this last like bit of talking about this. And that's note making versus note taking. And it's another term defined by Nick Milo. And note taking, he says, is just the capturing of other people's ideas. Whereas note-making is the creation or wording of things in your own ideas. And I'm interested to hear, now that you're being more minimalistic with your note-taking approach, how do you feel about the difference between note-making and note-taking? And how are you integrating that into your into your Obsidian knowledge management?
0: So this is the first time I'm hearing about that. But <clears throat> as you were describing it, uh, I think my approach might be a little bit different from a lot of other people. Um, I say this because I definitely do more note-taking in the sense that, for instance, for my books, whenever I take notes from them, I copy down my highlights, I copy down little thoughts that I have. And my current thought process is if I'm not creating any immediate output for this, I don't need to go through the whole idea of note making or um, I don't need to progressively summarize it uh, because I don't need it yet. So let me take what I remember from the book. Let me take my initial thoughts from it, my favorite quotes and then the ideas that I've had from it and then put it aside. And then one day, which it always comes up one day, I'm probably going to come back and use it. Um, I I'm really trying to do much less time in my uh, second brain slash PKM. I'm trying to make sure that whenever I am in it and I'm using it, I'm actually moving the needle forward towards something very specific.
1: I love that. I think that one of the big themes that we've gotten here is just, it's so much more fun to interact with these systems if you don't have the agonizing decision of, Organizing every single time you create something. Right?
0: Yeah. Because I mean, if you're not going to use it for like 10 years, do you really have to do it now?
1: (laughs) Future self can do it.
0: (laughs) It's the exact opposite of what you're going to hear about all the time, but that's what I'm going for.
1: (laughs) Basically, what we're trying to say is think think only in terms of what is happening in the moment never look to the future and (laughs) don't plan in advance of one day
0: don't worry about your future (laughs) self your future self can deal with it
1: (laughs) (laughs) rachel this has been so much fun i'd love to hear um or ask you before before we end is there anywhere that people can reach you outside of the podcast
0: Yeah, you can all check out my YouTube channel. It's just my name, Rachel V. Madrigal. And uh, that's really it. I'm not active on anything else.